for the quitters. Game quitters. Listen up, quitters. Game quitters. It's the Game Quitters Podcast with Cam Adair and Jason Wellwood. On today's show, special guest, Dr. Kim Lee from CGIClinic.com. And now, surfing in from the shores of San Diego, your host, Cam Adair. Welcome everyone to the Game Quiz Podcast. I'm your co-host Cam Adair here with Jason. Jason, what's going on? Oh man, it is a beautiful sunny day. I'm feeling good. Woke up feeling energized and ready to kick some ass on the podcast today. Mr. Cam, how you doing? Boom. I'm good. I'm currently house and dog sitting for my friend Adam Roa, who was on the podcast. Hope everyone enjoyed his episode. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm just dog and house sitting for him here in Encinitas which has been really nice. We're right across from the beach. So I've been surfing a lot. And uh, So a little bit of a day off, or no, you're still working your, your butt off there? See, it's interesting, because when you stay up in Encinitas, which is more like the beach town, your desire to work just drops dramatically, because you're like, well, you know, the beach is kind of right there, which is actually part of why I love living closer to the city downtown, because you have more energy. But more important things to discuss... You're currently at one month on the detox. Yeah, one month. Slow down. Isn't that crazy? I can't even believe that. Time I, flies when you're having fun. I guess so. I guess that's what they say. I have a few things I could report. I gotta, I gotta say before we get into it too. I don't know if I'm necessarily the best rep, universal. Say the best universal representation of this process because everybody's gonna go through it differently. It has been a breeze for me the more I get into it, and maybe that's something people will feel around the one month mark. But if you're not, that doesn't mean you're not doing well. I mean, if you made it to one month and you maybe made it there struggling, you still made it there. That's the main thing to remember. I really have learned a lot of things. And and one thing this past week that has really stood out to me that I uh, read in a book recently, it's uh, the chaos theory. Have you heard of the chaos theory, Mr. Cam? I've heard the term, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Well, chaos theory is basically the idea that the universe is just batshit insane. It just does things at random. It throws opportunities at you at random scenarios, things you could never predict. There really is no linear path through your life. You can't say, I'm going to do this and in three years I'll be here because things change so rapidly. It's only when you step back and look at the bigger picture that you realize Chaos theory was really leading you along a path the whole time, maybe just not the path you thought it would be. And I think you could probably attest to that with your success and your building this game quitters over time as well. It's never really what you expect it to be, but in the end you get there. Chaos theory confirmed. Let me, let me ask you, have you been following Dr. Jordan Peterson? No, I haven't actually. All right. A lot of people listening to this right now are, are about to get really excited, but uh, he's a professor in Canada who I know has been talking a lot about chaos theory recently and has just been, you know, in, in Stop Gaming on Reddit, there's been a lot of posts about him recently. He's, he's just someone who is getting a lot bigger. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of times, Sam Harris's podcast a couple of times. So, you know, maybe we'll have to get him on here at some point. Give Cam a call. Dr. Jordan Pearson, we want you on here. So let, let, me, let, me, let me just say quickly that for people who, you know, you're an example of someone who, was just ready to truly move on to the point where for you the detox will be a bit easier because your your mindset is in just a completely different place and it's kind of similar to when I quit like when I quit yes I relapsed and I had certain challenges but when I quit it was actually I was so determined to never play again that I didn't really get too caught up in things like cravings and urges and you know all this kind of mental stuff that can kind of happen to you when you're going through the detox. And so I think it's, it, it is super valuable to remember that because sometimes it's so easy to get, it, it's easy to forget that your determination and your commitment to this process is going to have a major impact on the level of difficulty that you end up experiencing. So if you're experiencing a lot of difficulty right now, that's fine. A lot of people are refocus that on what is your commitment and every single time you're having a difficult time 
refocus on what is your commitment because when you're committed to using this as an opportunity to overcome a challenge in your life to help you grow and to help you be your best then all the experiences you're having are seen through that lens and seen through that filter and that automatically makes your ability to rise up to them that much easier so it's not about you know you're having an easier easier time or harder time or someone else having a difficult time it's about understanding what your personal journey is like and remembering what are you committed to there you go very well said and you know it's also like cam said just because it may be it may seem like it's a breeze right now or cam started at a point or i started at a point where it was like yep i know i'm done and let's commit to it and do it that doesn't mean there hasn't been a time in the past where we may have tried to quit and it was a lot harder you're just not seeing that documented so don't think you know just because maybe it is your first time going through it's like cam said it's not really so much about the difficulty level of getting through this thing it's just that you're staying committed so Going back to the chaos theory thing here, how does that relate to what I've been experiencing? Well, I made some meaningful connections with this thing. I'll try to explain it as best as I can. Now, what I've noticed is when you get into something like this, 90 days seems daunting. It's a long time, and especially if you had trouble getting off games and you really want to do it, it's it's going to be a challenge, no doubt. So the thing you need to remember and stay focused with always throughout the process is you can kind of use chaos theory as a, as a beautiful way to give yourself some comfort. And I found that sometimes when I would uh, think about this process, like I said, very linearly where it's like, I have to do this, this, and this, and then I'll get to the end. It's not going to work that way. It's just not. So take some comfort in the fact that if things seem to derail or if things go away that you didn't expect them to go, that's just the universe throwing shit at you and you just have to respond. You're really given the ultimate uh, freedom of choice with chaos theory because every time a new experience or something unexpected comes your way that's just another opportunity for you to choose and go okay I'm going to handle it this way or I'm going to handle it this way just because maybe you thought oh I'm going to quit gaming I'm going to get on this detox and by month two I'm not going to have any more problems I know it it's just going to be the first month that's going to be hard but then maybe you get into month two and it's harder than you thought it was going to be that doesn't mean give up that just means hey universe is throwing you a curveball but I promise you, if you make it through to day 90 and you go and look back, you'll see that, yep, that was not the way I charted that course, but I made it. So when you're in the thick of it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's always hard to have that perspective. You just can't have it when you're in the middle of this. But just take that comfort in knowing that's kind of the way the world works. It's a crazy place. You don't have to let that intimidate you. It's like I said, it's quite the opposite. It's giving you that freedom of choice to handle each and every situation in a way that you choose to get where you need to go. Just think about about it like you're taking a machete through the jungle. Excuse me. Machete through the jungle. You're hacking away at trees. You're clear in the path. It's not going to be made for you, but uh, you will get to the other side if you keep on hacking away. Stay focused, stay vigilant, and remember to double down on what's working. When we start to make progress, it's easy to start to let you know things slip a little bit. It's so important to double down on what's working. So identify that, right? Part of your improvement comes from not gaming. So, you know, as you kind of begin to progress, don't look back and be like, oh, you know, I'm doing well now. Maybe I can start gaming. It's kind of like gaming was part of what was causing you to not be doing so well in the first place. So don't slip up on that. Stay focused, stay vigilant, and keep going. And today's episode is really exciting because we have an awesome interview with Dr. Hugh Kim Lee, who is someone on the very front lines of battling and debating about whether video game addiction should be officially recognized as an official disorder, which for me, I believe is actually really important for our community for one reason. And that reason is that it being officially recognized means that people are able to receive support whether it's financial support through insurance and having you know video game addiction treatment be covered in their health care or just for people to be able to get this, the support they need because they're able to actually be officially diagnosed with what's going on. So it's a really interesting conversation. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Before we get right to it, I wanted to throw one last tiny little piece of advice that you can use on your detox journey. I didn't get a chance to throw that in, but short and sweet, it's quite simple. Uh, If you find yourself guilting over, oh, I didn't do this or I didn't do that properly. I'm about to go back into games. I know it. I'm having the craving. Here's what you have to promise yourself. Do this. 
before you're going to go play games, maybe you're going to give in. Maybe that's it. You're just ready to give in. Do this. And I promise it'll change your mind even just a little bit to keep you on track. Look back at how many days it's been since you stopped and count the hours on average that you would have been gaming were you not on the detox. Get a calculator out, write it on a piece of paper, total the amount of hours you did not waste because you're on the detox, and sit with that number for just a minute and think, wait a minute, if I go back to playing, this all disappears. If I don't go back to playing, I could add another eight hours onto this number. Numbers are powerful, and I found that's helped me as well, and I just wanted to mention that. Always look back at what you've accomplished, because like I said, with the whole chaos theory thing, when you're in the thick of it, it's so easy to lose perspective, but always look back, see what you've done, take that number, and use it, empower you. I mean, it's it's amazing how much time you can waste gaming, and when you see that you haven't wasted it, trust me, it'll make you feel just a little bit better, so... That's all I got for today. Let's get to the interview with the doctor, shall we? All right, welcome everyone to episode six of the Game Quitters podcast. I'm your host, Cam Adair, and really excited today to bring on a special guest, Dr. Kim Lee, who is an Australian child and adolescent psychiatrist. He's the founder of cgiclinic.com, and he has a TEDx talk on the spell of digital immersion. Dr. Kim Lee has met experts in internet gaming addiction centers in Singapore, India, South Korea, Canada, and next month, Japan. All links will be in the show notes, so you can go to gamequiz.com backslash the number six, and all those links will be there. But Dr. Kim Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, Cam. Thanks for having me. Really excited about this. I'm, I'm excited about this because I feel like you'll be able to explain the million-dollar question that I have, which is... How in the world is video game addiction not recognized yet? And I know that you're out there kind of on the front lines really, you know, debating this question and, and talking about this from a research standpoint. And so I'm just curious, you know, just off the top, I guess, you know, where are we with that? And, and you know, what's the future hold? Yeah, well, I guess it comes back down to when I first uh, saw this problem and went to Singapore to investigate myself. I literally had to go all the way to another country where they were treating this problem to really realize that this is a, an addiction. And, you know, I always have that battle. You know, how could a game, how could a com- simple computer game really be that addictive? And after speaking to a lot of different researchers, clinicians, and ultimately patients who were telling me themselves that they had a better life without video games that to me made me realize that this is a problem and it comes down to a lack of control and when someone tells me that they don't actually enjoy playing the game anymore but they still habitually play and they're deep down they're feeling miserable then to me that's really telling me that they've got a problem now in terms of uh the debate i guess this people like to i guess have a for and against a black and white, you know, a line in the sand uh, situation. But I guess it's not as simple as that. Um, and that's why I made this uh, live debate at a recent uh, national congress that we have where all the Australian psychiatrists meet up um, and it was in my hometown. So I thought it'd be a, a perfect way for me to get my colleagues together, some brilliant minds, people who are in the front lines and really just battle it out. And hopefully this will be available online for everyone to uh, listen to because it was a really fascinating uh, debate. And uh, it really, I guess we have a responsibility to, as clinicians and doctors, to, to do no harm, but to be able to also meet the need out there in the community. And I guess there is a huge need from the community. People are seeking help and the thing that I sort of came, came away from that debate was is that, A, we all agree there's a problem, and B, we want to be able to address the problem without using the formal diagnosis, which is uh, internet gaming disorder in the DSM-5, and not being able to sort of place the blame on the actual gamer, the person with uh, who's suffering from that problem because it could be, or it is usually more of a, a wider problem. There's something happening in their life. 
there's other family dynamics and the, the diagnosis doesn't necessarily deal with that. It, we don't want to be labelling or uh, vilifying people who are suffering from this problem just because there's a diagnosis. So that, that's the dilemma. Right. And, you know, to me, it's so interesting because I read these articles like the one that just came out in the New York Times where video games aren't addictive. And I look at, you know, what the argument is. And the argument, at least in that one, appeared to be that video games aren't addictive because there aren't more people addicted to video games than eating a slice of pizza. Uh, that was just ridiculous. Or, I, I read that this morning because you mentioned it in episode one, right? Yeah, and I'm not really sure whether we should necessarily keep giving this article airtime because people are just going to keep clicking on it. Um, but let me ask you this, Cam. How many slices of pizza can you eat in one sitting? Well, the truth is that the United States has an obesity crisis that is very large. And so, yeah, you know, same like in if, Australia. Like if we're making the argument that video games aren't addictive because food's not addictive, well, have you gone outside and looked around? Like, Food and emotional eating, binge eating, yeah. you know, eating disorders, like, I mean, yeah. is that really still in question? So for me, I mean, that's one of the arguments. But then the other argument that, that's fascinating to me, I guess there's two. The next one is that, you know, there's video games aren't addictive because there aren't enough people addicted to it. Yeah. And for me, I'm like, yeah, but logically you're stating that it is addictive, just there aren't a lot of people. And either way, I think that's worth pursuing. But the last one that... I'm really interested if if you're able to to maybe shed some light on this is they say video games aren't addictive because there's no evidence of negative impact. And and for me that's fascinating because we could go to reddit.com backslash r backslash stop gaming, so the stop gaming community on Reddit right now and read the headlines. And I know earlier today I was there and gaming addiction is causing me to fail out of college. I have thousands of those. Uh, my wife is playing too many games. It's ruining our marriage. My husband's playing too much. It's ruining our marriage. Like, I have thousands of these quotes, and we could just go there right now. And how is it possible that they have not found negative impact from video game addiction? Yeah, it's uh, – so I guess yeah, there's so much uh, in that 30 seconds of uh, ideas that you just popped up there, but uh, – I thought I'd bring it back to the whole pizza question, yeah. Um, so my, my story with that is back in university, my friends and I, we'd go to Pizza Hut. We used to go to the all-you-can-eat days. Did you guys have that in the US? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so we had this point system where you could um, get a slice of pizza or a pasta and that would be one point. Now, I was able to eat 20 points worth of food, right? But I felt full. Now, I had a friend who ate like 25 slices or the equivalent. So back to the whole pizza dopamine question in that video games are the same as eating a slice of pizza. It's like how, how much video games, like an hour or a minute? The other day, uh, one of my colleagues asked me, why don't you try an old uh, therapy where it's a paradoxical therapy where you just tell the child to keep playing? And I thought about that, you know, as a, you know, telling them to play as a deterrent. And really, it comes down to, I think, with gaming, people are able to withstand marathons. The, the brain is able to play for really long hours. And, I mean, I've experienced that myself, you know, playing, uh, you know, the, the RPG-type games. People can withstand long periods of time playing games and not feel full. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think that with things like um, eating pizza, the the dope it's not so much the, the the dopamine hit or the tolerance of it, but people eventually physically can't eat anymore. So I really thought that was a really uh, poor choice of argument in that particular uh, New York um, article, but. Um, Back to the, the idea of diagnosis and the DSM-5 uh, and classifying problems, I think it, it does have a, a very important social impact. And obviously, in the past, there have been diagnoses come and go because of 
uh, our understanding of it and the evolution of the particular diagnosis. But in terms of the negative impact, I totally agree. Uh, patients are not going to school. They are not eating properly. They're not uh, uh, sleeping properly. And when their parents turn off, the young kids, their parents turn off their internet, they become violent. And, you know, how can you quantify those particular things? Like if a kid misses out on a whole year's worth of school, how do you quantify that in terms of uh, productivity and loss of um, development, you know, the, the growing brain? It's, it's uh, hard to quantify, but for these particular families, it matters a lot to the parents. It's their, their whole family's miserable. And to me, when I see parents tell me that they, after working um, through their kids' gaming problems and they're able to hug and have a relationship with their kid, to me, that is, makes, makes my work all the worthwhile that I know that this is something that people need guidance and they need support and they need therapy and they need help. So that just keeps me going. Absolutely. And and the same for me, you know, for me, from the very beginning, I've kind of said, you know, there's obviously a debate out there about whether it's an addiction or not. But I think it's kind of crazy to, you know, have the situation where a kid sits down and he's across from, you know, a psychologist or whoever it is. And, and they're like, well, I'm sorry, Johnny, you only meet three out of the nine boxes. So, you know, we're not going to be able to help you. And you know, Johnny's like, yeah, but I can't stop playing video games. And the doctor's like, well, you know, you only checked so many boxes. Yeah. And that idea to me is like, well, if Johnny wants help and Johnny's willing to, to come and ask for help, then sweet, let's help them. And, uh, you know, so like the stories of people's transformation for me is is amazing. And, you know, I'll share this with you uh, and on the podcast for the first time. We, we're about to release this. Um, but, you know, I've been working on a study with Dr. Daniel King, as you know. Yeah, he's and, my uh, friend. And we, so we're about to publish this study. And one of the things in it was that, you know, we really believe that studying the Game Quitters community, the, you know, a community of, of people coming together saying, I struggle with a video game addiction or, or a technology internet. There's so much ma- amazing data in there to really be able to understand who is this issue really impacting, right? Like, it takes you 30 seconds in the community to realize that there's negative impact. But if you're asking the average person who doesn't have a problem with video games, then yeah, of course you won't see negative impact. So there's so much data here. And one of the things that we found was by going through the the criteria for internet gaming disorder from the DSM-5, we had a sample size of 400 people and they met an average of six out of nine. And 84% of them knew they had a gaming problem over 12 months ago. And we also saw a average quality of life from a quality of life measure standpoint there were three and a half out of ten and at the end of 90 days they were seven right and so those are significant jumps in in the quality of life from relationships time management focus you know emotional health physical health these different areas and you know for for me what's really interesting is that they were meeting so many criteria for the internet gaming disorder uh, diagnosis so that's interesting to me, but I'm curious, as someone who has, you know, you've traveled to clinics all over the world. Yeah. In our community, so we have members from 81 countries, so it's very very diverse, but the majority of our community is very much U.S., Canada, and Europe. Lots of Europe, and even uh, Eastern Europe as well. But we only have so many members from the Asian countries, even though... The problem generally is kind of spoken of as like a really big problem in Asian countries. Yeah. So I'm curious, have have you seen a difference in the types of, of people who are showing up in clinics, you know, in, in Asia, India, South Korea, and Canada, because you've been there? Uh, did you notice any differences? Yeah, well, in Asia, obviously, uh, I'm known for spending six months in uh, internet addiction clinic in Singapore. Uh, at the Institute of Mental Health, and uh, what I noticed there was that in Asia, in countries like Singapore and South Korea, there's three main factors. The first one is that children are under a lot of pressure to succeed academically, and if you're not able to meet that academic achievement in your real life, 
video games provide that substitute and that feeling of, you know, you're awesome. And I, I know you speak about the, um, uh, the the visible achievements, the predictable achievements in your story and in your work, and I think that's spot on. And also in Asia, the parents they're spending a lot of time just working, working overtime and not being available to really supervise and monitor their kids' use. And a lot of people use the internet internet nanny, and I can understand why they would use that because it's so convenient. And but they they don't realise some of the negative effects of that. And uh, the third thing that I noticed is that when parents are actually parenting or spending time with their kids, they're very passive in terms of their parenting style and let their kids get away with a lot. So uh, that's something that I've noticed. Um, also, in Asia, people are living in uh, high-density uh, buildings and uh, have sort of limited access to open areas and have access to really super high speeds of internet. So when I was over in Singapore, Korean professional gamers would actually come to Singapore because their bandwidth would be, you know, one hundredth of a millisecond faster than in Korea. So they'd get a slight edge. So that's, I thought that was pretty mind-boggling. But in South Korea, they've got this real... Uh, problem where they're having to balance the technology companies that provide employment to their country and economic opportunities versus their young people who have a, a very embedded e-sports you know, um, culture and the people who are suffering and loss of productivity from that. So they have like these, you know, the, the similarities between Singapore and South Korea is that they routinely uh, survey and um, screen their school kids in three different year levels to pick up the kids who are at risk and then provide them what they call enrichment programs, programs to help them understand why they are spending so much time and ho hopefully prevent that. Now, in, in Australia, we don't have something like that, but certainly... Uh, Dr. Daniel King, uh, who you're working with, has a very good reputation um, coming out of the University of Adelaide. And he did some of the really early studies here with school kids. And he found that 11% uh, of school kids had problematic technology use. And, um, you know, since then, we've had national surveys. Our national health department have looked at the addictive problems with internet and gaming use and they found that there is an estimated 78,000 teenagers in Australia having problems with their internet and gaming use and they actually found that girls although they don't game as much as boys they're having a lot of problems controlling their amount of uh, internet use and I hear that when I go to high schools girls are saying you know it's their social media lives are fake. They feel as though they need to cons constantly show that how much fun they're having. And yeah, I mean, I believe in the US they had a 60 Minutes program by Tristan Harris, the uh, former Google product manager, saying how social media and everything online is geared and programmed for addiction. So I, I just think the world is changing so quickly. And I think that's why we're having a bit of a delay in terms of the uh, formal diagnosis is that we as researchers, clinicians, we have certain ways of proving something, whether it is worthwhile treating or not. And that takes years. You know, you've probably been working on this for a long time with Dr. King to publish it. And it has to go through different uh, protocols to make sure that what you found is legitimate. Now, technology is moving so fast and the technology companies can just change the algorithms based on the data um, that they're collecting from everyone. So every time, I'm sure Skype is collecting our data right now and looking at, uh, okay, how, what, are the, what is this guy, Cam, and um, this other guy in Australia, Kim, talking about? How long are they talking about? How can we change the algorithms to make them stay online for longer? How can we make more money from the user? So, 
um, yeah, it just opens up a huge discussion. Right. And, you know, the CAMH study that came out of Ontario, Canada, I think last year, found, you know, 13% of students between grades 7 and 12 have a video game problem. And that was a 4% increase from 2007. Now, there's something else that really interests me from the study that we just did. And one of the things is that we found that, so the average age of our community is about 23 years old, male, college student. But they began gaming at nine years old, which, for you know, I started gaming when I was 11. And so nowadays, people are gaming far earlier than nine, 18 months, a year, yeah. two years, right, three years. And the compounding impact, negative impact from starting earlier is, is greater and greater and greater. Yeah. And so I'm looking at 13% of students in Ontario, Canada, which was the equivalent of 144,000 students wow. in one province of Canada that has 10 provinces where they didn't find the statistical difference between Ontario and any other province. That's millions of students alone. And we have members in 81 countries right now. Wow. And our That's average, an awesome effort. And, and our average member isn't even a high school student, right? They're a college student. And so what I'm looking at is it was a 4% increase from 2007. If we look forward five years, 10 years, now these, these kids who started when they're two years old, now they're the college student. What's the number going to be like then? Is it 20, 25%? Is it even higher than that? That's why I think this stuff is so important because we're only reaching like the cusp of it right now. I mean, growing up, like I didn't even have high speed internet. I didn't, I certainly didn't have a smartphone in my face at all times. So that's the concern for me. I guess, you know, part of what I'm curious about is do you notice a difference in like the types of games that people play and, and the problem? Um, so a lot of the work that I do is uh, actually looking at game design and uh, obviously Richard Bartle is a very famous game designer and um, I've read a lot into his four gamer types. Have you heard of that before, Ken? I have not. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so he was the godfather of virtual worlds, essentially. He created the multi-user dungeons and Back in the 80s, he would survey his colleagues who were playing them and he would actually find out what their motivations of play were. And, and he realized that different people played the same game for different reasons and different people played different games for the same reason. So um, so I understand, Cam, you, you used to play StarCraft, is that right? Yeah, StarCraft, Counter-Strike 1.6 and World of Warcraft were kind of the big games for me. Wow. Uh, literally. Um, uh, so what was it did you find most enjoyable about StarCraft? Anytime there's anything strategic, competitive, and real-time for me is, is very much what I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah. So in Richard Bartle's sort of uh, basic gamer types, you probably fit more the achiever explorer type um, because you were very much about competition um, did you enjoy dominating or did you just enjoy the status aspect? I don't play to lose. So it's like I, I play, I mean, even now we have a ping pong table at the office and uh, they just got me uh, a custom Game Quitters ping pong paddle because I've kind of become known in the building as like I'm going to play to win and I'm going to dominate you and like step up to the plate uh, okay so digging a bit deeper maybe you'd fulfill the killer player type where you are actively trying to dominate bully other people in order to stay on top um so the, the four player types are basically the killer type achiever type socializer and explorer now other game designers have extrapolated on that and one of them you should look up is nicholas Yi, and he has this really uh, useful um, website called uh, Quantic Foundry. You should definitely look that up. And I use this a lot with uh, the patients that I see just to let them understand what type of gamer they are. And they do essentially a questionnaire and it spits out this answer based on uh, six 
player types and um, one of them is immersion and um, I speak a lot about that in my TED talk. Um, so those two game designers really have inspired me a lot in terms of understanding the motivational psychology behind why people play games. So, for example, pick a pick a popular game. League of Legends. League of Legends, yeah. So I actually went to uh, watch League of Legends live um, in South Korea and uh, all the best games regardless of whether it's League of Legends or, you know, Grand Theft Auto, they will allow any player who plays it to, of different player types to fulfill that need. So obviously with League of Legends, you've got people who love to dominate, people who like to achieve and get up the leaderboard, um, and people who just enjoy the social aspects of League of Legends. And then there's also the uh, backstory, the, the hacks, the... Um, secrets and people like the the storylines are more the explorer types now in terms of um, using that information based on that I try and connect those motivations to some kind of activity and I understand that with your program it's very much activity based and trying to fulfill fill up their time with real life activities is that right Cam? yeah that's correct yeah so by using um the player type model, it gives me a bit of guidance on what sorts of activities that particular person might enjoy in their real life. That's really cool. And, and I know that, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in your TEDx talk was around identity. And it's central to this problem. You know, I, I look at, you know, the needs that gaming fulfills, right? Escape, social connection, you know, achievement, yep. purpose. And then the brain chemistry component of the type of stimulation that you get in games. But then there's this whole other conversation around identity. And in members of our community, what we see a lot is that, you know, gaming has been like the central core piece of their identity f from a very, very young age. And when you go to move on from playing video games, what you're really doing is choosing to move on from your social group, choosing to move on how you spend all of your time, choosing how, how you, you, know, you deal with stress choosing how you feel a sense of purpose and a reason why to get up in the morning, but you're also moving on from this this identity that you have as a gamer of you're a part of this group, right? Society hasn't really got you. Society doesn't really believe that, you know, what you're doing is valid. Yeah. But you and your community, you know that it's something that's that's cool, right? And so for you to, like, go off on your own is, is very challenging. And so I'm curious, like, you know, feel free to kind of comment just generally on it initially, but then I'd be really curious to hear, you know, what do you recommend for people to, to help them begin to, to shape their identity as they move on from games? Yeah, sure. Well, Richard Bartle would say that the best games uh, cater for the four player types because you need a community and the internet allows for that to happen. So people join the same game using the internet and let's just say a game was just designed for killers, right? The newbie player would enter that game and would just get demolished, wouldn't they? So what would happen if that person got demolished? They would quit. So the game has to actually allow for people to transition through the game based on what's happening. Now, the other uh, aspect with game design is that it has to be similar enough to the real world. So you just mentioned uh, table tennis at your workplace, right? And we know that the uh, classical game Pong is based on that. Now, the reason why Pong was successful is that we were able to understand and step into the Pong world using our knowledge of table tennis or tennis to play that game. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, so uh, the whole idea of a virtual world is it has to be believable enough for your brain to use your existing real-life skills, walk into this virtual world, and move around in it. Now, in terms of identity, I guess it's interesting with the internet in that your identity gets formed in within this community. And I really strongly believe that because of this sort of fluidity between real-life and the virtual world, um, essentially, 
the motivations of play within the game, I often see that translate into their, their real world and the way they act within their real world. And the, the great thing about um, the internet and virtual worlds is that you're essentially anonymous. You, you're not really accountable um, for your actions because you're, you're using an avatar. So people get to explore different aspects of their lives, you know, fulfill that need to be dominant within a game without having to feel bad about the consequences. So um, the whole idea of identity and how it links back to your program and the forums and similar other programs for other addictions like um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that you have a, an, an, another community which is not within the game but outside supporting each other. And it comes back to that whole idea of um, a village and um, feeling like you belong. And I think that's the real strength of Game Quinners is that people leave their virtual world and then they enter another world, which is Game Quitters, and they form a new identity where they belong somewhere. And we all have that as an innate, I think, uh, need to feel connected, to feel somewhere that we belong. And it's great that you've created this other world that allows people to return back to their, their real world with the support of Game Quitters. So I think that's really important. It's, it's a bridge in the very least. And one of the things that you know, we see a lot, I'd be really curious to hear your take on this, is, is the intangible skill development has, is very underdeveloped, right? So you know, I'll have a member who will say, you know, I really want to quit gaming, and the thing that holds me back is I don't want to lose all my friends. But even if I was to, to decide to do that, I don't even know how to make new friends, right? And, and the idea of like being able to actually go and manage their time, right? Or be productive to put in a resume to get a job. When they don't get the job or, or they, they get rejected from the job, you know, they share like, I'm discouraged, I don't want to try again, right? Whereas in, in a game, if you lost, you would just press restart and keep yeah, going, right? Of course, yeah. And so there, there's this element of in games, it's a lot safer, there's less risk in real life, there's this perception of that even though you know if you put in the resume and you don't don't get the job that's fine just try again right it's not like that personal um but there needs to be a lot of different intangible skills developed social skills resourcefulness time management these different areas that really help you succeed in life and i think you know quitting games helps that from the place of it creates the opportunity for you to actually spend time on working on those things but those are the things that are really going to help you be successful. It's it's really like uh, when Neo comes out of the Matrix, isn't it? He has to rebuild his muscles, and um, you know his mind is brilliant, and he's able to do a lot with his uh, neurons. But it's his muscles that haven't been used ever. You know, he has to be uh, retaught, relearnt, and rebuilt. So uh, a lot of people um, who spent you know countless of hours you know, two-thirds of their waking hours online really have to um, get the support from a community like Game Quitters to really pull them back and rebuild. And they're comfortable online, right? And and that's yeah. the key is, you know, it's I, I struggle when, you know, there's just suggestions about things like, you know, just go see a counselor, go see a therapist. And, you know, James Driver out of New Zealand, I believe, you know, he did a study on what held people back from being able to go seek help in person. And he found, specifically for video game addiction, this study was done and it was shame and stigma, right? They don't feel like that the person's gonna understand them. They don't feel like they would be understood. And and I've seen this in college students, right? I, I surveyed our community and said, you know, did gaming have an impact on your academic performance? And everyone said yes. And I said, okay, question number two, did you ever tell anybody about it? And they all said no. And they literally yeah. say direct quotes of, I never told anybody about it and nobody ever asked. And even if they did, they wouldn't have even cared. And so we have all these college students struggling in, in school, failing out because of gaming, but they're not telling anyone. And that's where like the importance of an online community where they can you know, seek help and kind of be anonymous and be able to get 
integrated into into the community, feel more of a connection to it, where they feel safe and and you know in their comfort zone, they don't have to leave the house. And then from having the connection with the community, they're much more willing to go seek more professional help if that's what they need, because they feel like they have a, a group of people behind them who have their back, right? And and so I think that's really really important. Um, and you know, it, in any addiction or any community, any any kind of behavior, having those online areas where they can go to, I think is crucial. So one thing you talked about in, in your TEDx talk was about breaking the spell. Yeah. So tell us a bit about breaking the spell. And, and one of the ways that, that you related it was that when you have a kid and you take him kind of away from games, he lashes out, right? And, and he lashes out because he's kind of caught up in the spell. So, you know, what is the spell? How long does it last? You know, and, and for people listening to this who, you know, have maybe just quit gaming or are thinking about it, you know, who are kind of feeling that that mind fog and some of those withdrawal symptoms, you know, what, yeah. what should they do? Um, well, that's, uh, I was going to ask you um, about your, is it 90 days detox? That's right. Well, I thought that was really interesting in that you found somewhere that um, the brain needs 90 days to readjust its dopamine levels. Yeah, it came from the NoFap community and, and the work that uh, Gary Wilson has done around porn addiction and and that's really where I kind of got the inspiration from, and yep. you know surprisingly I've I've even you know done a lot of motivational interviewing with our members about this, where I said you know ninety days like, it's interesting, non gamers are always like ninety days that seems like a lot, yeah it and does I, doesn't it? I ask all our gamers I'm like you know ninety days like did that ever the number ninety ever scare you and they're like no actually I loved it because it gave me something to focus on and it was kind of big enough that I knew it was challenging. And it's just interesting how you have those differences. But the 90-day detox is built off the work that Gary Wilson did in, in porn addiction around uh, dopamine. And from you know, looking into his work, what I found was he was stating that the same thing happened with video games. Right. Okay. And that's cool. That's Cause, a, um, mm-hmm. um, because to me, when I'm, when I'm just thinking of uh, kids that I see, I really take a really conservative um, approach because my my scenario is a little bit different in that they're physically coming to see me in my clinic, right? And uh, I'm worried about losing engagement. So a lot of it is actually working with the parents, trying to empower the parents. And if I'm thinking about a detox, I have to really prepare them and get the young person on board to actually agree to it because if I'm forcing them, it's going to really jeopardize my working relationship with them. And then once I've lost that, then it's really hard to get them back. So um, in the past, I've thought about, you know, one-week detoxes. um, And then if that failed, sometimes the young person would actually say, I think I need to try four weeks. And once I've got them in that position, then then there's a lot more better chance because I want them to succeed, right? The, you know, in video games, it's not about um, failures. They're sort of like temporary setbacks and giving them that flow effect, really. And back to the idea of the spell, I think it comes back to that in-the-moment feeling of flow and, I guess, preparing yourself. Like, flow can last for as long as you get that positive feedback and that sense of achievement and that that feeling that you're flooded with in terms of I'm exploring this really awesome place, I'm learning something new, I'm able to use my expert skills and they're matched with the level of challenge, right? That's the classical flow experience, the optimal human experience. And when that is suddenly cut off, your brain's like, what? What's happening? And you just become furious, zero to 100, because you don't quite understand what's happened. Now, in terms of uh, uh, parents and switching off the Wi-Fi in the middle of the night, it's usually because they get so frustrated, they just don't understand why their child isn't coming off the computer or why their child's not listening to them, and they'll just either cut the cables or pull out the plug and without forewarning the kid. And you've just broken that flow effect and that immersive effect of being in that place. They've just yanked them out and 
um, broken that spell. And that's really infuriating for someone, especially if they're in a League of Legends match, which is high stakes. They've got some, they could be putting something as an ante or gambling or getting some important points or an item. And they've just let not only themselves down, but their whole team down. You know, there's all these different aspects and it's, um, you know, back to the, the flow effect. It's it's like the, the programming of nowadays. Um, have you, do you have Netflix? I don't have Netflix, uh, but I'm familiar. Well, any kind of series or, you know, people talk about binging on their favorite TV show, right? The TV show has this, it's designed to be flowing. It's going through this storyline. And then at the end, what happens? It's There's a cliffhanger. And then, and then it countdowns on Netflix. It gives you a twenty-second countdown, which is more time, which is short enough for you to be lazy enough to not move. It's like perfectly timed, and you know that they've done that very intentionally. Done it on purpose, and your brain's like, I want to keep that cool feeling. I want to see what happens next. Why have you taken me out of this immersive experience? It's like, you know, if you're going to watch a movie uh, at the cinema. And all of a sudden, the projector stuffs up. People are going to want their refund. They're going to throw popcorn. They're going to get furious. It's it's the spell of immersion, my friend. You you might find this interesting, but I actually don't have internet at my house. Wow. And it's been about a month and a half now. Uh, basically, the, the internet just... So where are you doing this Skype call from? I'm at the office. I'm at the office. Oh, all right. That's and cool. So the internet broke at our house like a, a couple months ago, and... And then we just, my roommate's very, like, not really online much. And she's a naturopathic doctor uh, about to be. And the internet just stopped working. And, and we just were like, you know what? Like, let's just not fix it. And let's just do this as an experiment for a month. And then we just still haven't got internet. Uh, but I've noticed that for a lot of those times where, you know, I would just be at home, like, okay, one more episode, one more episode. That's all cut out now because I just can't. And... I just find myself going to sleep earlier and things like that. Uh, but one of the things that you mentioned was was around how, for you, the types of clients you see, you don't want to kind of force them into a detox, right? Which I totally understand. Or or 90 days would be a lot, right? And so this, I'll, I'll share a bit about this, but part of it is, you know, what's what's crazy is the people coming to, to our community, they're coming to us. Right, which is actually very different in just kind of addiction industry in general is, you know, the number one question I get from therapists is like, how do we get more people who need help to seek it? And I'm like, well, there's this whole community here of people seeking it and no one's forcing them to do anything, which is why I think the 90 day detox works because it's one of those opportunities for them to really, you know, do something very specific, but they want to, especially after they learn the brain side. Now, from the detox, a couple things that we've learned. Uh, withdrawal symptoms tend to be the worst in the first three weeks, especially the withdrawal symptom of boredom. So even if so that's one of the other dilemmas mm -hmm. um, with uh, this idea of addiction is that there has to be this physiological uh, withdrawal and, you know, with alcohol, it's, you know, the shakes and um, I guess the descriptions of withdrawal with internet gaming is very poorly worded. So there's that debate about that. But clinically, I think uh, what I see is a lot of people having headaches. Does your community experience that? Like when they're cut off from their internet games, getting headaches? We see some of that. We see a lot more like urges and cravings for sure. We see a lot of boredom for sure. And I believe Dr. Daniel King even has a paper where he found that boredom was a withdrawal symptom that's right. currently not listed under the criteria for withdrawal symptoms in the DSM-5, which is, you know, again, why I think research is so important. Um, but we also see a lot of anxiety and depression and those as withdrawal symptoms as well. So we found at least with boredom within the first three weeks, that withdrawal symptom of boredom has definitely like dramatically reduced, which is important because in those first three weeks, if you're out there listening to this, you could be quitting gaming and, and doing these other activities and finding them boredom or finding them bored or boring, sorry. <laughs> Not because the activity is boring, but because you're just going through a period of detox where you just think everything is boring. 
So you have to kind of hang in there. The other thing too is I think, um, I don't know about you, but I find that our flow of conversation is getting better as we go along um, on this podcast. And um, that's a classic sort of real life scenario. Just imagine if we were actually sitting in a cafe talking to each other, there'd be this sort of sense of uh, anxiety that our flow isn't quite right or what we're going to say something wrong or our audience is going to make fun of us. It's like, that's real life. There's going to be, um, that's just a normal part of talking to people. And I think that's one of the anxieties of people who uh, spend a lot of time gaming is that when they're not gaming where they're always getting that feeling of flow and everything's going right, what happens in their real lives? You know, how do I talk to someone on the street or, you know, um, talk to my friends? I don't have that sense of everything's going right and accepting the fact that you might mumble, you might pause and you might make yourself look like a fool but that's okay and um yeah i just thought that and gaming gives you a flow state and i think that's you know for people listening that is something huge to take away because yeah when you leave gaming it's going to take you some time to find that flow state again and it's not that it doesn't exist believe me i go surfing and i find that flow state every single time because when a wave is coming to kill you you're in flow state (laughs) There's no choice but to be in that state, right? When you catch a wave, there's no ability to think of anything else because things are happening so quickly, which is also why I go surfing, right? Uh, ping pong is kind of similar, right? Like, it's it's kind of hard to think about all my problems when I'm playing ping pong because it's just like in the moment. So you yep. have to find those ways to find flow state in your life. Meditation is a good one. Any sort of sport, that works really well. But, you know, also just be patient with yourself. Uh, you know, on the detox side, one thing I would just kind of recommend, uh, you know, just based on our conversation, I think that seven days is too too small. And and just from all the gamers I've worked with, I really think like two weeks would be great uh, or even 10 days because I feel like a week with anything is enough time where like on sheer p- willpower alone, because it's only a week, you can like just like toughen it out. But it's like some of those extra days I know with like NoFap, for me, it was always around like day 12. That's where things would kind of get a bit crazy. But then after I got over it, I was way better. So just like that 9 to 12 day range, I think really just speaks to uh, to some extra difficulty that's necessary uh, for people to really kind of take that next step. Yeah. And I guess um, in my situation, I would probably follow them up after a week. If I um, can fit them in, um, essentially, the objective might be a bit different. Um, for your community, it might be actually quitting. They've made that decision. 90 days is going to help me quit the most. Mm-hmm. I guess with my situation, if I suggest a week, it's more to allow them to give that window break to help them develop, to make them make that decision. Oh, okay. What was it like? It's like a little test, a taste, mm-hmm. um, so that I can give them success. And then if they're, uh, depending on the situation a week later, then we'll have another discussion. Right. But, um, yeah, I think um, what you're doing with a 90-day thing is just great. Uh, it's it's objective. It Hopefully, you know, with your program, you're able to, you know, walk them through day by day, uh, week by week, what's going to happen and help them break it up into chunks. Chunking it really is going to help them a lot. Yeah, I think step by step, right? And and that's, you know, as much as we can, we try to do that. We have something coming out soon that we're working on uh, because I really want to be able to help people get jobs, right? I think that's like a huge part of, of this. And, and so we're looking to put together a catalog of different games, popular games, and kind of like what they taught you, uh, what kind of skills you developed in them, and then what kind of jobs would be good for you, and really just kind of create a resource like that. So, you know, that's exciting. And then there's lots of more exciting things coming up. So I, I guess, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, the question I'm, I'm curious to just kind of end on is, is from your perspective, you know, you're on the front lines debating this, you're, you know, really trying to help this process move forward to a point where, you know, the people who need help can get help, and they can get it from a place of like professional support, you know, I the reason that's important is is from an insurance angle, right? Like, when it costs twenty five thousand dollars to go to a rehab for video game addiction, and you have to pay your life savings with that, that's a lot of money 
versus being able to have some insurance cover it and you get the help that you need. And so from what you know, you know, as a community, as the Game Quitters community, you know, we're all very passionate about being able to contribute to this, bring more awareness, contribute in whatever way we can. So, you know, what can we be doing to bring more awareness or, or help? You know, is it on the research side? Where can we kind of put some of our efforts to really move this process forward? Yeah, well, I think if you're wanting to hit that 10 million mark, you really got to get someone who can translate it into Chinese for you, my friend. Okay, cool. Yeah, we've done some. I think some of our documents are in Mandarin, uh, but they haven't been released yet. We have Polish as well, a number of them. But, um, yeah, I think the, the Mandarin or, or Cantonese as well is definitely yeah, part of it. Yeah, uh, because I guess um, there's been a real tipping point, and you've, you've, I think all the researchers uh, are noticing this in the past maybe even six months. You know, different people are talking about different things, Um reposting different articles and there's going to be this ongoing debate and really we got to think about industry and what the industry is worried about people leaving the internet like for example in australia um we don't necessarily have that sort of motivation for the insurance purposes for this diagnosis um, because we don't have we have a different system to the u.s but i think from the industry point of view they're seeing their diagnosis as a threat. And I'm sure, um, for example, in Australia, we've got, we're, we've got a big country, right? So our internet connections are based on uh, optic cables and copper wiring. And the government has, it's essentially the biggest infrastructure project and we're, we're in debt of millions and billions of dollars, right? So how can they pay for it? Well, essentially, they're going to tax the taxpayer, but also make people get subscriptions to the internet. And how do they do that? They get families on there because um, if they can force people to use it through schools, because we've got this one laptop to student policy in Australia, um, and a lot of the curriculums going online, trying to sell it as this next big thing. But a lot of parents, it's it's a it's a massive headache for them because I'm going to say to them, uh, we're going to try. Uh, a week's worth of detox and they're like but they need their laptop for school and it's a real uh big barrier for their child in terms of staying away because they're triggered by the phones in their pocket they're cued by the laptop in their classroom and it's a it's a real big problem and it's uh, something that uh researchers clinicians game quitters has to work with government industry technology companies it's it's a, it's we're gonna have to work together to solve this problem. I absolutely agree, especially when it comes to kids have to do their homework and submit it online. And schools have fully committed to that process, and and we're not going to reverse that, right? So this is where we all have to be able to understand our relationship to gaming and technology. We have to understand how to have a healthy relationship. And you know, for me, I'm able to to use a laptop every day. I work. I I do work a lot. I'm super passionate about the work that I do and I could, you know, leave my phone at home today and not even notice it, right? Or I can go surfing and I don't have my phone and I'm fine or, you know, I can like shut off and I also don't game and I don't game because I know that my ability to moderate that is incredibly difficult, right? It's it's very easy for me to to game and I think I could probably at this point like keep a job but I would not be doing what I'm doing right now, and, and I would not travel. I would not go surfing. I would not do anything else. I would just work, do the bare minimum I have to do to get by, and then I would game. And I just know that, right? So I set boundaries around that in my life. And whatever you need to set boundaries around in your life, if you're listening to this, you know that's what we're all about. That's what we're trying to encourage you to do is just you know, understand what your relationship is to gaming or technology or, or anything, And if it's having a negative impact on your life, then you have permission to make that change. And I encourage you to do it uh, because I think that, you know, there's a lot of positive benefits that can come from times where you set boundaries around negative habits in your life. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise. And and also, thank you so much, Ken. Even beyond that, just really appreciate you being out there on the front lines because I can do it in a certain way, you know, in media and, and by building this community and stuff. And that's part of, you know, my strength. But 
when it comes to like all the research and being able to debate on that side, I'm not able to do that. And so I really appreciate people who are doing a very honest job of it. The um, the thing about the debate also is that I'm trying to keep myself honest. I'm trying to be transparent. I want to better myself. And the one thing that I've learned with playing computer games is the achievement is much greater when you have a great opponent. So that's why I got the best people to challenge me, to challenge the diagnosis, to really teach us that, okay, we've got this thing called internet gaming disorder. How can we use this without shaming the person, without making them feel like they're a bad person, that they've, um, you know, that, um, that how can we make it so that their family doesn't sort of make them feel guilty, how they can get help without feeling shamed and embarrassed and that it's okay that there are other people out there, there are other families and there are other parents out there who are struggling with this because everyone is connected to the internet and we are all uh, finding out and discovering that is having an impact on our lives and how can we manage that better. Very well said. Thank you so much for being here. Any links that you want to give people, you know, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, I've got my website, cgiclinic.com, and uh, you can find there's different sections in there. There's a research component, there's parenting component, and there are, I even review articles from people like Dr. King and our National Australian Surveys. So you can look at some stats there and uh, my take on it because uh, it's really, for me, it's actually a more benefit for me in terms of um, journaling and putting down the things that I'm reading, but then just putting out there for other people to read and benefit from too. So, um, yeah. And also I've, also, I've also got a Facebook group and Twitter, CGI Clinic. I'll link all of those in the show notes. You can go to gamequitters.com backslash the number six for episode six. And we'll have to do this again. There's there's so many other things that, that I haven't touched on yet. Like, I, I'm super interested in diving into a discussion about, you know, just terms like digital heroin and digital dementia and, and things like that. I know you did a response video to that that uh, we'll link up as a preview, but we'll definitely have to do this again and, and really wish you the best. And, and if our community can support you in any way, just let us know. Yeah. Cheers, Cam. Cheers. Have a great day. Thanks, Game Quitters community. For full-length episodes of the Game Quitters podcast, be sure to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash gamequitters. Or visit us online at www.gamequitters.com.